0: Hello and welcome to the Six Cells podcast. This is Mike Nicholson from Six Cells. Uh, today we're going to be talking about advertising effectiveness. It leads on quite nicely from a, a very recent episode, which hopefully you heard, uh, with Mike Follett from Lumen Research and Michelle Randall from Digital Turbine, where we were exploring the um, what. Uh, high attention environments have in common um, it was um, based out of a piece of research between Lumen Research and TVision vision um, that found the most attentive uh, in terms of seconds per ad advertising formats tended to be cinema, TV and rewarded video in mobile games where uh, they all shared that full screen sight sound motion Uh, Relaxed yet alert type um, entertainment based audience. So, today we want to talk about video advertising, I suppose, in the main, but um, specifically what makes video advertising effective. So, um, I'm delighted to welcome uh, to the podcast today Orlando Wood, who is the Chief Innovation Officer at System One Group and also author of two IPA published books one uh, named Lemon, which I'm halfway through at the moment, and one. Uh, called Lookout, which I have yet to start because I'm halfway through Lemon. So Orlando, welcome to the 6 Hells Podcast. Uh, hello Mike, lovely to be here, thanks for having me. It's um, it's my pleasure and thank you very much for making the time. It's, um, it's a really interesting book and um, I've seen a few of your your talks online as well. So um, I, was, uh, I was really excited to get the, uh, the opportunity to talk to you today. So just to kick us off, as is traditional, could you give us a brief introduction to System One and what you do please?
1: Sure, yeah, well I work for a company called System One and System One uh, is, uh, I guess, a kind of platform for enabling marketeers, um, also agencies, to test in very short time frames the work that they're creating so that we we help to develop, we help uh, clients to develop their advertising and um, we test for emotional response and we benchmark against Pretty much every TV ad there is in the UK, in the US, we operate in other markets as well. But uh, we have a platform that enables you to compare how you're performing in emotional terms relative to the competition, to your competition. And that um, emotional measure, as I have shown in my work, is a very good proxy for in-market growth and effectiveness. And helps to make your spend go a great deal further. you know if you have uh, advertising that that can command that can elicit this emotional response, um, it's a great proxy for attention for for an, you know the ability of your advertising to lodge your brand in memory. So um, we are here to help and uh, you know uh, very keen to talk. so if you'd like to get in
0: touch, please do. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, So we're talking about advertising effectiveness today, Orlando, and um, in particular, the decline in said advertising effectiveness over a period of time. Uh, So just to give us the backdrop to that, could you talk a little bit about um, in the book, you talk about the changes in music, film, TV and comedy output over the last three decades. Um, And I think advertising kind of sort of dovetails with that, uh, from my understanding. So can you talk a little bit about those changes, please? and, um, and, and And what we're seeing? Yeah, well, I think, uh, I mean, it probably won't uh, be a surprise to
1: many listeners to hear that things have changed an awful lot culturally in the the time since the kind of digital revolution, since the early 2000s, in in cultural terms. And, you know, specifically when you look at the sorts of uh, culture that's being, you know, the programming that's being made, And it's one of the things that I do in both books, actually, Lemon and Lookout, is I look at the cultural context within which advertising is made, because, of course, advertising not only uh, reflects what's going on around us in the world at any given time, but it also kind of leads it as well, um, has a cultural impact in and of itself. So... I, I look at, in both my books, you know, changes more broad, broadly in culture in, since the time of the technical or technological revolution. And I show that, you know, there have been uh, quite marked changes in the types of films that are being made. So, uh, you know, we see far fewer uh, romance and comedy films today and many more kind of horror and uh, uh, thriller kind of films. And I note the changes in the type of programming that you see on television. You know, away from things that involve people connecting in the moment. You know, kind of theatrical things like sitcoms and, uh, I guess, uh, you know, those kinds of um, uh, soap operas. You know, that kind of thing. That that then that not so many being made uh, as there were. You know, just a few years ago. And instead, you know, you see the rise of um, live sport, and you see the the rise in the number of shows that are being made that are, you know, perhaps about talent competitions. That there's, a, you know, there's a, a marked change in the kind of programming that you you tend to see on on uh, you know t- television. And all of this um, in a technological age where uh, you see a, a, as perhaps we'll come on to talk to, I think. Um, a change in advertising style as well, and a change also in the very nature of our attention in this digital world, Um, a a shift away from a a certain way of seeing the world towards a a more literal and more linear way uh, of seeing things, and um, one that sort of swings away from humour, human connection, towards, um, I suppose, uh, competition, and uh, and goal orientation, and that's, that's the heart of the, the the thesis, I suppose, in both of the books. And the problems that creates for advertising, because it prioritizes a certain kind of advertising over you know another, and uh, a kind of advertising that perhaps
0: doesn't generate these broad and long and lasting effects. Okay, uh, in talking of those kinds of advertising, you talk about. Um... A decline in advertising effectiveness across a similar period of time perhaps to uh, the changes in programming and tv mm-hmm. and film um how do we know before we go into the why that that might be happening um ha- how do we know that it's happening um in real terms how do we measure that um and, and how do we in know that there has been a, a decline in, in advertising, in ab- advertising effectiveness
1: yeah well it's uh, i guess lemon's starting point was the work of peter field you know a uh, great great analyst advertising analyst peter field who has traced changes in uh, the ability of advertising to generate lasting effects by which i mean uh, annualized uh, share of market gain relative to extra share of voice um, and that's to say the ability of advertising to grow your market share relative to the amount of money that you're spending relative to your competition. And this sort of is a a longer-term metric uh, than things like ROI, uh, which tend to uh, prioritise shorter-term returns. And so what Peter's done is looked over the years at the IPA's effectiveness database, um, and he's also connected it with uh, uh, databases that track, you know, the the creative awards that have been given over the years, and he's shown that there's uh, less and less evidence of advertising generating these broad and lasting effects. And at the same time, uh, he's shown with Les Binet this increase in uh, short-term objective setting. And it all coincides with, of course, the digital revolution and a switch away from uh, advertising that, that's, that's there to, to grow future earnings through brand building towards one that is more, I suppose, short-term and performance, inverted commerce orientated. Okay. So that was, that was the starting point for all of this. And also my work prior to writing Lemon, actually with Peter, Looking at a a change in the uh, presence of um, characters in advertising, what I call fluent devices, characters or human scenarios, you know, where you've got people interacting with each other that are repeated again and again, so recurring characters. And I saw in the IPA's database that these had been almost almost disappeared, you know, but yet they're incredibly effective. So it was sort of that, and Peter's observation, and then a sort of, um, uh, I, I suppose, a serendipitous um, reading of a, a, of the work of a great scientist, neuroscientist, psychiatrist, Ian McGilchrist, that put me onto the idea for the book uh, Lemon in the first place and the research that underpinned it.
0: Got it. Okay, so we've got this um, move towards more. So you you mentioned Peter Field there. So is that a part of his long and the short of it work with Les Binet? Is that is that a part of the same thing or is it? A different Yes, he,
1: study? he he talks. They talk in that, um, and that was um, probably about ten years ago now, isn't it, that that first came out, um, and in some of the, some of the work that he's done since then, um, specifically on creativity. Creativity in Crisis. Uh, there was another publication that he did with the IPA a bit later on, where he, he mapped, you know, um, creative awards on top of the IPA's effectiveness database and um, showed, you know, just how uh, campaigns were not, were not creating the kind of lasting effects that you'd expect anymore and that they were more and more focused on short-term and focused on You know the the sort of performance advertising that um, you see a lot of today, and that and that style. And what I do then is I look at the well. Let's have a look at the advertising itself and the style of that advertising, the features of it, and how. You know what is it about these ads that makes them less likely to put a brand in memory and to grow your share over you know uh, over time.
0: Yeah, I'm showing my age somewhat here, but when I first started in in the industry, there was no such thing as the internet. Um, And a lot of advertising was um, dominated by TV, by cinema, by press, um, Mm. by outdoor. Um, And so while there was, of course, still direct response advertising, it wasn't perhaps so pronounced. And I can't help but think that the the rise of the internet has um, led people to be able to click uh, and therefore, because we can um, doesn't necessarily mean that we should but we do Um, and so we're we're kind of furiously creating this sort of short-termism and this okay I put the advert out there now what was the response immediately Um, and perhaps at the detriment of that storytelling that emotional connection that those memory structures and and building brands for the long term yeah it's funny because even when you speak to people that are perhaps um, fully immersed in the digital world when you ask them the advertising that they remember the most it's usually TV, TV advertising from when they were young yeah. um, and they can quite often recite the song or the story um, that was told Yes, um, and um, I've seen to comedic effect in a number of different um, uh, events where people have been asked to raise their hands if they can remember a digital ad from um, from recently. And of course, the reason for that is because the amount of attention, or part of the reason, is the amount of attention is fleeting. And so it's more nudge, perhaps, than 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 long-term um, brand That's building. Right. That's right. You know, I mean, th- there have long been two schools of
1: advertising, really. One that, um, you know, that has a more general approach and that sort of... Uh, you could say respects its audience and treats them with intelligence and uses wit and charm and through an emotional appeal, probably through music and movement and narrative, um, seeks to lodge the brand in memory. Yeah. And then there's been the other school of advertising, which uh, seeks to get a, a more immediate sale and uh, will do so probably through repetition um, and You know, a sort of uh, a a, a very clear call to action message. And the thing is, that second type of advertising works uh, on those people who might already be in the buying window for the for the brand, for the category. Um, But it's not going to work as well if those that brand hasn't done the brand building work, and also uh You know the brand building work operates across everyone, whether they 're in the brand the buying window or not, uh, and seeks to lodge the brand there so that when people are in the window you know that 's the brand that comes first to mind and that people want to use you know so there there are these two schools of advertising, probably a hundred years old really, and yeah. that um you know we 've just seen in recent years with the new digital tools available to us this swing towards the more direct um, kind of advertising. And uh, I think people are starting to, to realise, actually, when you talk to the uh, platforms and certainly um, marketeers, that there is still very much a need for uh, the other kind, the more important kind, you could say, that focuses on future earnings and growth, and that's the, that's the brand-building advertising I
0: talk about problem is it's so hard to measure in the short term and uh, therefore um, perhaps less um, as, as CMO tenures get shorter as well um, it's perhaps less effective because building for the long term is not necessarily how they're enumerated so um, yes I mean it, they it, might no, not it, be there for the long term if they don't get something yeah. happening in the short term so it's, that's, it's a difficult one I, I, I mean the this the notion of short term and long
1: term I think is slightly unhelpful really because um you know i've sort of in my in my book look out i kind of try to reframe it as not long term but lasting effects because who wouldn't want those yeah. um and i think that's more true of how it actually works you know you create an uh, some sort of lodge the brand in memory now and then it, you know it
0: pays back you know yeah at the time i've got a great example market. of that actually orlando from my um from, from my younger years um and it was from Volkswagen and they were um, they, they would spend, goodness knows how much money on TV advertising on one theme or one theme alone for a period of time and then they would move on to something else. And um, one of the themes was reliable, um, yeah. if only everything was as reliable as a Volkswagen. One of them was the cost uh, and there was the ads where... Uh, you could you were watching the audience watching tennis so you could hear the thwack of the ball in the background and the audience were going from left to right with their heads until suddenly they all just stopped looking right and the ball carried on going and, and then the camera panned to a poster that showed how um, inexpensive a Volkswagen was. And they did yeah. this over a period of time to the point where when you ask people of my generation, what are the most reliable cars? Volkswagen is the one that immediately comes to mind because people think they know that yet if you look at what car they're probably halfway down you know they're they're not necessarily the most reliable and it's it's showing the power of brand building for the long term and I probably haven't seen a reliable as Volkswagen advert I don't know for 15 years maybe Um, but that story became lodged and and has done and, and I quite like testing it on my dad because he is he's insistent that advertising doesn't work on him uh, yet he kind of fell into that same trap which he was very annoyed about but anyway that's another story <laughs> so in the book you talk about these left brain um, elements to advertising yes um, and right brain um, elements to advertising and you've kind of codified I believe over a 15 year period um tv advertising across that period and tried to understand what are the more left brain or, um, elements, what are the most, what the more right brain elements and which ones are the most effective. So could you talk a little bit about that please? Yes, of course. Um, it's actually probably
1: more like 30, 30 years. I go back to the early nineties. Um, and what I've done is I've taken, um, for anyone who's listening and wondering, well, isn't that a bit outdated, the whole left right brain idea. Um, Well, the idea that was popularized in the 1960s that the left brain and the right brain might do different things, yes, that that has been um, dismissed, I think, and and fairly so. They're both involved in all types of cognitive function, but um, there is a brilliant scientist called Ian McGilchrist, a psychiatrist, um, neuroscientist, actually philosopher, you could say, who has uh, spent a lifetime looking at this Pretty much, and has written some uh, two brilliant books. Um, the First of which is called The Master, Master and His Emissary, The second is called The Matter with Things, and he looks at the way the two hemispheres of the brain pay attention to the world, and he looks at it in people. He also looks at it in other mammals, and indeed in even in birds and other uh, even even in insects. You get this sort of uh, slightly different uh, these two hemispheres and how they how they pay attention to things slightly differently and he says that um uh that the right hemisphere actually is the hemisphere that presents the world to us in the first place that's responsible for a kind of broad beam attention that uh, alerts us to things that are happening just slightly off stage at the edge of our awareness that helps to ground us in the world through sustained attention um, that helps us with divided attention as, as well, and anything of interest it passes to the left hemisphere for the left hemisphere to bring this kind of narrow beam attention, which is uh, looking at things close up. You know, t- left hemisphere tends to categorize them, identify them, know whether they're safe to eat or not. You know, whilst all the while the right hemisphere is bringing this broad beam attention to bear on the world, making sure we. Don't become someone else's lunch, if you like. So you've got these two different types of attention, broad and narrow, and the sort of two the, the habits of thinking associated with the left hemisphere are quite different. So the the left hemisphere tends to, as I said, categorise things. It's very goal orientated, sort of locks on to its target, uh, grasps it, you know, uh, with its right hand most most often c- controlled by the left hemisphere in most cases. Um, and then you get this uh, sort of linear thinking style. It can't bear ambiguity. It likes things to be locked down, certain, fixed. It's pretty rigid in the way that it thinks. Um, it maps the world in sort of two dimensions, so it can't really see depth likes to use signs, symbols, language associated with the left hemisphere more than the right um, can 't do music any very basic rhythm it's just very literal um, and and pretty um you know, sort of, uh, no sense of ambiguity. No, it can't bear certainty, can't uh, uncertainty. It can't bear risk, and it likes to control and manipulate. And then you've got the, the right hemisphere, which, as I said, presents the world to us in the first place. More associated with social bonding, with people understanding people, their gestures, their faces, their, um, the the way that they talk. You know, their emphasis, their accents, all of these things that tell us so much more than just the words themselves. So, so it helps to understand the implicit, the context of any given situation. helps us to understand the whole, if you like, rather than the parts. Mm. And that uh, right hemisphere is also responsible for understanding metaphor, um, You know, because it can understand that two opposing thoughts could both be true at the same time, and it helps us to understand humour. It tells the difference between a joke and a lie. Helps us to understand music, helps us to understand depth, um, space, uh, lived time. So our sense of lived time comes from the right hemisphere. The right hemisphere is better associated with the limbic system, which helps us to feel emotion. It's better associated with expression of emotion in the face. Um, and it's also uh, more associated with episodic memory. So memory of people, faces, uh, uh I guess, episodes, places in our lives, whereas the left hemisphere is more associated with semantic memory facts and figures in the public domain. I mean, they're both associated with both, but there is a a a slight difference there. So, you know, just by describing those things, you probably get a sense for the sort of uh, advertising that might capture the broad-beam attention of the right hemisphere, and it's often, you know, People in a defined place um, in dialogue, talking to each other. Perhaps a metaphor, humour, um, music, things that will lodge the brand in memory as well. Um, and you know that's the, that's really what's at the heart of both books. Really, is looking at advertising according to this this wonderful uh, hemisphere theory and trying to understand the features of advertising that might capture and hold attention that will put things in memory. And so that's that's at the heart of LEMON. So in LEMON I look at advertising and I, I describe some of the features that might be of greater interest to the left hemisphere's habits of thinking. So uh, things that are really close up uh, and abstracted, so abstracted hands, so you just often see the mouth, the eyes, the hands in advertising today. You don't see the full person if you do see the full person then they often quite look quite rigid and often staring at the camera with devoid of emotional response or, or, or expression so i talk in about these left hemisphere uh, things so abstraction uh, rhythmic soundtracks words on the screen telling us what to do you know this sort of me at you communication um things broken up into smaller Parts, socially short, sharp cuts that you often get in advertising today, so no sense of lived time. Um, These are just some of the features, you know, and then for the right hemisphere, I look for features that the right hemisphere might be interested in. So real people in a a place with a scene unfolding in lived time, dialogue, um, perhaps things set in the past. Anything that gets us as the viewer to fill in the context of what's happening and understand it. Uh, Mm. Music. Um, uh, the, the sort of uh, a, characters with agency, you know, that are doing things, knowing glances, implicit, you know, communication between people. So all of those things. And, I, and in Lemon, so I look back, as you say, you know, over a long time period, I, I map um, the same advertising uh, breaks from week 40 from a long-running soap opera in the UK, Coronation Street, and look at the changes in these... Uh, in the features of advertising, on this is TV. So you know you'd expect this to be a uh, you know a, a kind of a great brand building channel, audiovisual channel. And you see this kind of swing away from advertising that is whole-brained or even slightly right-brained from about two thousand and six onwards towards advertising stars that are very much suited or much better suited to the left hemisphere. Now. Uh, what I try to show, and I go in, in more detail on this on, in Lookout, is that these features for the right hemisphere are the features that are better associated with an ad's ability to capture attention, to hold attention, to elicit an emotional response, to, and to put the brand in memory, to create these lasting effects. Whereas features for the left hemisphere, you know, if if their strength, if they have one is driving sort of direct response, uh, driving people to a website, to an app, that kind of thing. People are already in the buying window. So these two types of attention, broad and narrow-beam attention, actually mirror the two ways in which advertising could be said to work. You know, the sort of future earnings, brand-building type advertising amongst a general broad-reach kind of audience and the narrow-beam advertising of the left hemisphere for Immediate sales amongst people in the buying window um, and all the measures of course that are associated with with that. And we've seen this swing in the digital age towards habits of thinking more generally in culture but also specifically in advertising, towards this kind of left brain performance style advertising, even on TV. so that's um I hope that gives you a sense of both what it's Yeah what underpins it, but what it is uh, that I've done in these books.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So so taking that broad beam and narrow beam attention um, example and then maybe overlaying that with something like a poster ad or a press ad, is it too simplistic to say that our right brain is more likely to lead us towards an ad because something caught our attention mm. and then almost pass over to the left brain to figure out the detail but we would never have looked at the detail had our right brain not sort of had not seen something interested. in it that, that yeah. said oh, you might be interested in this pay more attention
1: yes that's right so you know your you know the right hemisphere is open to newness and it's open to um Things it hasn't seen before, whereas the left hemisphere is much more interested in things it knows and, and the familiar, and, and it mm. gets a bit locked in that. Um, so the right hemisphere, the, the way to capture its attention in audiovisual advertising is is through uh, the living um, and things happening in live time, and you know where we have to fill in the context, where, the, where we have to do some work ourselves actually to to make sense of it. You know, it's in, that's interesting to the right hemisphere. Um, now in, in, of course, press, print, advertising, actually any advertising, but um, press and print advertising, their role, if the role in, of, of, of TV advertising or cinema advertising is, you know, you've got to be more entertaining than the programming surrounding it, then the similar thing is true in print uh, advertising. You've got to be more interesting than the, you know, than the things around it. And, you know, I think you've got to be probably more, um, you've, you've got to be visually arresting in a, in a kind of billboard um, context, you know, because there's so much else going on around you in the real world. So, yeah, the, the, the task is to capture that broad beam attention with something entertaining or interesting or out of the ordinary but that also makes sense you know on further reading and inspection and that's uh that's 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 the art of it
0: really yeah um, i mean people say that we make decisions based on emotion and then try to back them up um with facts and logic and that sounds like it kind of follows that right brain initial i want to call it gut feel which um probably isn't the right term but this feels like the right decision and then our left brain looks into the detail to see if we can back up that initial decision you with give,
1: that yeah i think that's a, that you know that is a, a fair uh assumption you know that's what that's daniel kahneman and others sort of talk about that kind of way of, of of approaching you know judgments uh and decisions um but it's the right hemisphere that sees the whole that sees the the wood before the trees if you like so you know you've got the the job of attracting that attention is quite a different job um, from us, you know, performance advertising tends to assume you've already got the interest of the person. They're in the market for it, you know, whereas brand building advertising is quite different. It, it, you can't assume you've got their interest. You have to create the interest. You know, you have to create something that's visually and in every way, interesting.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, I think it was Peter Weinberg at the B2B Institute that, um, so performance advertising in a B2B setting would probably be called d- demand generation. Uh, but he basically questioned that term uh, for a similar reason to you've just outlined. He said it doesn't generate demand, it merely captures the demand that already exists. Harvests? Um, yeah. Yes, it harvests the, the yeah. demand that already exists. Whereas brand uh, telling stories, human stories, um, creating that interest um, and, and you know, telling, t- telling those stories helps to lodge the brand um, yes. in their memory so that when somebody is in market in the future, um, and let's face it, the vast majority of any given audience are not in the market at the time that they see this advertising, mm. they're much more likely to remember it. And for evolutionary reasons, and speaking to Rory Sutherland and other people like that, we tend to like and trust things we're more familiar with, right? So if we become familiar with a brand through story at a time we're not interested, in that mm. particular product or category, mm. we're much more likely to be um, to, to sort of lean favourably towards that brand at a time that we are in market. Yeah, that's
1: right. And um, and in, in fact, in my work as well, I show that um, you know advertising that has a lot of these right brain features that features the living, you know, that um, uh, has has people connecting with each other in a in a space, you know. Uh, music, all of these things that that appeal to the right hemisphere, those sorts of campaigns are much better able to establish trust and um, and and you know it's basically social bonding, isn't it? Um, and and to create esteem for the brand, which and these things are becoming more and more important in a, uh, on the IPA's effectiveness database. Actually, um, if you can do that, so it's much needed and. Um, Uh, I think you know there of course I'm not saying it's all bad at the moment but there and there are lots of people interested in in creating that kind of advertising again but we have somewhat lost I think the knack and and the confidence and the experience to create that kind of work and uh, you know I'm keen to try and try and bring it back
0: yeah I wanted to touch upon B2B um, again, if I may, because um, a lot of the people listening to this will either work for a B2C brand or they'll work um, in a company that serves B2C brands, and we spend a lot of our times talking about how, for example, Volkswagen might reach its audience, mm. but everyone listening to this podcast while they are a consumer of course they'll also be in a b2b setting in some way shape or form and have something to communicate to their audience who work in other businesses so i'm wondering what we can learn while i appreciate that 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 your study was um looking at b2b uh, sorry b2c communications i'm wondering what b2b can learn from it um and to to give that question some context what we do at six sales is we through um, the insights that we've learned over the years, we understand that when people, so when Orlando, for example, mm-hmm. uh, your good self posts something on LinkedIn, people are much more likely to be drawn into it and read it because it's another human being and they can yes. kind of feel that they're they're having a, a two-way dialogue than they are when a brand posts something, not mm-hmm. to say that brand isn't important, of course. Now, B2C doesn't have that um, um, luxury, I suppose. It's very hard in B2C for for it to be, um this is the ceo and everything's going to come from the ceo however that's where characters come in right you have the Meerkat, yeah. and yeah ha- and you have characters yes. that become a part of the brand the horses yes. in, um in the lloyds ads um, well, i mean unless but, you've got a founder like richard branson i suppose you know the founder story. Yeah. yeah
1: yeah
0: but even 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 he if if i may say so probably you wouldn't want to see him on your tv all the time talking <laughs> about virgin this and virgin that um a meerkat um and he'd probably admit this himself is probably a lot more um, attractive or a, a beautiful black horse galloping through fields um, is probably a character that you could probably stomach. I mean, I, I, I should speak, the reason I, I run a podcast is because I have a face for radio. So, um, so, you know, I, but, but, you know, if I was going to have a character, it would not be me. Trust me, it would probably be more likely to be my daughter. Anyway, I, 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 digress. So, so, so from this, how much of this do you think is transferable to people when they're in a B2B environment? So we've got this right brain, these right brain elements, um, proving to be more effective things like human connection uh, stories that um, Mm. unfold dialogue facial features uh, accents Mm. all of these right brain elements that are proving to be more effective in b2c communications how well or not does that transfer to b2b communications would you say
1: well i mean totally i mean we're the same people you know whether we're in a b2b or a b2c environment and um we you know i mean at the work that the b2b institute's done actually at linkedin and i think with peter and les Binet, peter field Binet has shown uh this you know pretty conclusively that emotional appeals are are more effective just as they are um with with b2c uh advertising so you know it, it totally applies and uh it, in some ways it's probably even more important that you you do this um so i think there's a the, you know there's there's much there i mean you, you think if you just to think of an example um an example i often give is that i don't know if you'll remember this mike probably will but um listeners may or may not uh the there was a, a long running campaign for the yellow pages um some years ago uh with J. R. Hartley. harley Hartley. yeah um, you know, there was the Hornby train set, um, there was the gardener and his, you know, I mean, they were uh, when the main drive for that, of course, was uh, a, it was b to b It was to get people to advertise their, you know, in, in yellow pages um, yeah. rather than to get people to use the yellow pages, as it were and uh so it's you know and it was you know highly effective and high highly emotional um touching you know sentimental poignant even campaign yeah. and uh, uh and actually you know it strikes me that it's it was pretty much the google of its day um and you know just because the the brand is you know that the, the technology has moved on that these things are still highly uh, appropriate, highly re- relevant today. So, so yes, B two B. You know, you, you've, got, you've got to think of, in a similar way um, about having a kind of broad brand uh, recognition, familiarity. Um, you know, creating trust so that you, you know you had me at hello um, when when the, the sales team reaches out.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. So, um, in your book, you talk about entertaining for long-term growth. What did you mean by that, Orlando?
1: Well, a lot of the
0: features that I describe in the book
1: uh, associated with the right hemisphere really are to do with, in, in audiovisual terms, entertaining people, um, and the you know relevance isn't enough. I mean, we seem to be talking a lot today about this notion of relevance in a driven I think by social media advertising social media companies that you know we need to be to be relevant to people well I'm afraid that's not good enough you've got to entertain people you've got to be interesting to people you've got to present yourself in a way that um, has personality actually that uh, you know probably uses humour not not always necessary but it's very helpful Um, that presents you as a as a almost like a person you know that that because we trust that kind of brand, one that doesn't take itself too seriously, that doesn't um, believe that it's perfect, one that uh, has a, a, a sense of um, you know um, confidence but modesty at the same time is kind of the the way I'd like to describe it and in fact, if you look back at what happened in the creative revolution in the 1960s and Bill Birnbach's approach um, and others, you know, who were behind that, that sort of creative revolution, they, they felt similarly and they, they created advertising that, um, that was disarmingly sort of honest in one sense, you know, uh, but that actually, uh, and that got people, you know, sort of drawn in buy it in fact that's the, the lemon um front cover of my book is of course homage to that uh bw lemon ad and that campaign so so yeah i mean bill burnback said nobody's perfect and nobody will believe you if you claim to be and i think there's yeah. there's much to be learned from uh, that. that's the platform effect isn't
0: it is it the, is yeah it the well we like, would talk, s- s-
1: would talk yeah. about you know the uh, An admission, you know, an admission, you know, VW talked about, um, you know, whereas other brands at the time were showing their cars as long and space age and, you know, something scientific. And, uh, you know, they found the magic in the product by which it was, you know, presenting it very differently. It was a different looking car, but they they showed it as foreshortened. They showed it, um, as they talked about it in terms of ugliness, you know, rather than beauty. They said it never changed, you know, whereas everyone else was bringing out a new feature every few months. So they understood how to to reference the competition, but to bring out something of the product, you know, the magic of the product, and to do it in a way that was endearing and that, you know, got people thinking, uh, wow, you know, this is a bit different. This is quite interesting, you know, the way they're talking about this car.
0: It's why it's important that when people are uh, active on social media, they should show some vulnerability. But unfortunately, some people take that too far um, and um, end up being quite cringy. The crying CEO, for example, um, I think perhaps took that it uh, does, a, a does step seem too to far, happen, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, so I, I agree with that. I think if I think about um, Paddy Power, for example, um, always funny adverts. Sometimes I'll watch five minutes. Which is essentially an advert, which is a story unfolding, which is funny humorous it 's football related and i 'm mad mm. about football mm. and it and it really draws you in and and specsavers mm. is a brand that I mention a lot of being excellent yeah. at that as well. They tell funny stories that always lead back to their should have gone to specsavers um so so wonderfully well, and lots of out, um outdoor mm. examples of that as well so, um yeah. so so if we 're um so if we're in a, a situation where we understand that right brain elements are more effective, why is it that advertising is leaning left, if you excuse the pun?
1: Yes. Well, uh, there are all sorts of reasons for this. And, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the ability to be able to create advertising. I mean, by the way, all those left brain features are, are much cheaper to, to include in your advertising than actors, costumes, sets, you know. All right. of those things, product shots, abstract so hands, cheaper yeah, than yeah, all of that's much cheaper bacon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the, than it is to create. You know, uh, so that's one of the drives, of course, efficiency, a um, mistaken uh, efficiency. Um, the the notion that you know we have to create something to to feed the kind of machines and to create some content, if you like, uh, that needs to be be able to cut it down into smaller parts, re edited. Placed somewhere else, leads you towards less narrative style and more a kind of, you know, short, sharp cut thing. Um, The notion that this ad has to play everywhere across the globe, you know, the global ad that, you know, an ad that works everywhere is probably, you know, that's meant to work everywhere is probably an ad that doesn't work anywhere particularly well. Not always the case, but, you know, often, often the way. So, because it can't draw on local cultural nuance and references and all those things that, you know, insert you into culture. So, uh, yeah, you get you, you, all of these things, you know, and uh, much like actually the 1950s, which, you know, before the creative revolution in the 1960s, you know, we've kind of become a uh, an era of bigness and science. And these these things, you know, don't necessarily favour um, highly creative work, um, uh, and, and makes it difficult to get this kind of kind of advertising through. And you know, against the backdrop as well as I talk about in Lookout, against the in- increasing solemnity in everything, and fear and anxious, uh, you know, anxiety and. Um, much like, you know, other periods in history, which is one of the other things I do in the books, is, you know, I look back at other periods in history and compare, you know, give parallels from other periods where we've had massive technological uh, in- improvements, you know, on the one hand, we, it can often uh, set society and culture back a little bit
0: uh, at the same time, because this narrow, narrow beam of starts to take hold. Okay. So what... Just to finish us off, as um, I, I know you have a, a hard start. What, what practical steps can marketers take to change this left brain dominance that's um, happening, mm. probably as they uh, as they see their creative today?
1: Yes, well, I, d- I don't want to plug my books, but perhaps I will uh, have a read. Um, but you know, I think the practical. I will steps... plug
0: them for you. The, the, oh, um, thank you. I, I'm thank halfway you. through Lemon, uh, maybe slightly more than halfway through Lemon, and it's it's fascinating. So well, yes, please you. do uh, IPA published Lemon and Lookout out all please Amazon do as well. yeah. please do read on Amazon on all good yeah. book shelves and yes, some rubbish good, ones exactly. as well. <laughs> yeah,
1: um, and um, so so yeah, but I mean seriously, that you know uh, there is a. I talk about the importance of character and incident and place. So um, can you describe your advertising by asking yourself and answering these three questions? Who's involved, what happens and where is it set? Because if you can, then you're probably on something. I think it's also very important to think about um, brand building advertising as being a little bit like a parable. So in a parable, you don't uh tell people what to think you present a situation think of the you know the good samaritan for instance and you let the audience draw out the meaning and the from the context of what you're presenting so uh great creative howard gossage said something like you know when you're baiting the trap with cheese leave room for the mouse you've got to let the audience do something you know you've got to they've got to fill in the gaps because that will help to lodge it in memory, you know, once they've made those connections. Um, so it's not just a case of telling people about your product. You know, you're not creating a product brochure here. You're, you're writing a letter, in a sense. Um, and people have got to fill in the, the gaps and the context, you know, for themselves. Yeah. So I think those are two important, you know, pointers, both from a
0: detention point of view and a memory point of view, too and from a storytelling perspective it's another reason why video is so yeah. important right because a, a single facial like a, a, a facial expression can say so much that you can't do with static i i think um I'm thinking of some stand-up like if you take Ricky Gervais for example quite a lot of the delivery is in the facial ex- ex- um, expression he gives while he says yeah. something and if you only heard what he said without the facial expression you lose something and I well, remember that right. very right. clearly being the case for me when I was right up in the gods watching him and I was thinking I th- I, I enjoyed it it was good yeah. but I think I missed a lot from not yeah. being able to see what he was doing with his face yeah. absolutely I um, we'll think that,
1: bro, that, Rowan Atkinson or, or Mr. Bean, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't really write. <laughs> it's difficult to convey it without, without the face. You know, the face yeah. is so important, and, um, and, and that, that, you know, the eyes. I say, as I often say, the eyes, the mouth, the hands. The, these are the features by which the soul of another makes itself known to us you know that th- this is this is what's so this is these are a gift you know for communicating so yeah um so so important and and the human face in particular so so use it
0: well yeah one one of the many books that i've yet to read um because something else always comes along and, and trumps it is uh, honest signals um and, and the author talks about uh the the millions of different ways we communicate with one another sort of subconsciously and through the way we act how our eyes move and Mm. stuff, stuff Mm. like that where we don't even know we're doing it and so yeah um again another reason why video and storytelling can help that sort of to really come out well uh, it's the right hemisphere that understands all of these things you know that pieces them
1: together that understands the motivation as well behind them um and uh and they're so interesting to the right hemisphere, so so absolutely crucial,
0: crucial. Fantastic. Listen, I'm going to leave it there because you have a, another meeting to go to. Um, thank you so much for your time, Orlando. It's been fascinating. I knew it would be. Um, I'll plug them again. Uh, Orlando's books are Lemon uh, and Lookout, both available on Amazon and many other places. Well worth um, checking out if you work in advertising, media, marketing, um, fascinating uh, insights um, in, in certainly in lemon. I can't talk to um, to uh, look out yet, but I'm sure um, based on the uh, on the quality of lemon, I'm sure it will be an excellent read as well. Orlando, thank you so much for being on the Six Cells podcast. Really appreciate it. Absolute pleasure, Mike.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: Enjoyed it.